Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Should people have the right to say whatever they want, whenever they want? How do you think about free speech, the First Amendment? Are there limits on what words we should or shouldn't be able to say? You know, it's very rare that AOC and John MacArthur could agree on something, but they both agree on this. There should be some serious limits on speech in this country. Well, today's guest might want to nuance their position quite a bit. His name is Greg Lukianoff. He is a best-selling New York Times author. He wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, which is one of my all-time favorite books. I read it almost once a year now. Maybe more importantly, though, he is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Fire, as he calls it, is the preeminent defender of First Amendment rights on campuses and increasingly off campuses, because guess what? We all live on campus now. In this conversation, we talk about the history of free speech, how it's being compromised on college campuses, off college campuses, and even how we should think about this in a big tech world. How do we think about content moderation, censorship? Do people have a right to free speech online? This is a wide-ranging conversation with probably the preeminent best expert on the topic. So let's hop in. Greg, it is fantastic to have you on the show today. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) So here's where I want to start. Few people commit their entire professional lives to a singular cause, but that's exactly what you've done. And so I want to start with you. Why do you personally care so much about free speech? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a long story. My joke also happens the benefit of being true that I talk about in Unlearning Liberty is my first earliest memory is my fourth birthday. My second earliest memory is Christmas when I was four, and I got a present from my Auntie Rona that was the first gift I ever remember getting that I thought was terrible. (laughs) She got me this like cheap plastic drum that apparently was a joke for her friend, my mom. And I looked at my dad and I looked at my mom and my mother's British. So she has a very like politeness above all things. And my father is Russian and Russian has a honesty above all things. Politeness is a form of deception. And I look back and I'm like, I have to be honest. I have to be polite. I have to be honest. I have to be polite. I have to be honest. I have to be polite. And I do what any four-year-old would do. And I break out crying. And I remember my oldest sister saying, oh, baby, doesn't like his gift starts crying. And I wanted to be like, no, like it's like my first experience with the fundamental paradox. <laughs> and and so from a very early age, I had a sense of the greater importance of being honest than polite in many cases, but also that norms on freedom of speech really differ depending on culture. So like the neighborhood I grew up in, 
There were a lot of other first-generation kids. A lot of us had family that were fleeing authoritarian regimes. My family fled Russia because of the Bolsheviks. We were not aristocracy. We were serfs who became wealthy, which, of course, were murdered like crazy by Lenin and Stalin, sometimes called kulaks, which isn't a real thing. So like a lot of first-generation kids, one, I could understand what made America different from other countries, and that was taken for granted among my very diverse group of friends. Two, I had this very powerful warning because my dad, even though we fled the Bolsheviks, he grew up in Yugoslavia and Yugoslavia is its own horrifying story of tribalism and repression and autocracy. So I had a very strong sort of grounding in the uniqueness of human freedom, the importance of freedom of speech in that. And so since I already had that, and by the way, also as a means to bridging class divides, because I grew up in a lower economic class than most people I'd be later in life, and also just that it was this unique thing that for the most part was on the losing side in history. And I went with all that baggage when I got to college, and then I became a student journalist. And if you want to get radicalized in the direction of the First Amendment, freedom of speech has to be really broad. Be an editor at a newspaper. Interesting. Because people come into your office all the time, and they've already made up their mind that you have to censor, you have to punish this writer, you have to apologize for that article, you have to do a correction, and then you give them you know, a minute to think about it. And what you see what they're doing is they know you have to punish that writer or withdraw that article. They don't know why yet. And I'm like, oh, wow. So the instincts to censor even comes before the reason. So it has to be really expansive rationale for protecting freedom of speech or else any exception, people will drive a bus through. Oh, that's fascinating. So in your experience as an editor, people wanted to cancel someone, and sometimes it's kind of a sloppy word. I don't know if it's the best word for it, but they want the article to be taken down or the person fired, and they would come up with a ad hoc reason in the moment <laughs> for why this needed to be the case, which trained you over time to realize we need broad, broad freedom of speech, or else people will come up with the wildest explanations for why it's right to remove someone, again, from their work or take their work off a page. Absolutely. And that's why my blog is called The Eternally Radical Idea. And that's a reference to freedom of speech, because I always like to say, since the dawn of civilization, brave men and women have risen up to demand that other people be censored. (laughs) (laughs) And usually they are on the winning side. Um, Freedom of speech is very rarely, uh, historically speaking, on the winning side. It makes some practical sense, like prior to the printing press and after the small scale democracies died off. You shouldn't be too surprised if there's no practical way you can talk to you know, any large number of people, that discussion of what that would mean theoretically, you shouldn't expect as much of that. But almost as soon as you have the printing press, you have people starting arguing for this really small liberal idea of freedom of speech. I did six credits in law school on censorship during the Tudor dynasty because this is how into this particular cause I was. Who isn't fascinated by censorship in the Tudor dynasty? I mean, that is high on everybody's list. (laughs) I remember telling one of my friends about this because I ran out of free speech classes to take. So I made up my own. And I remember telling one of my friends like that. And literally one of them said, who's making you do that? I was like, I designed it. <laughs> Me, myself, I'm neurotic. I want to go down the rabbit hole and it's nice and warm <laughs> down in this rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, so I actually want to talk a bit about this. Um, give us a brief history of this idea, the eternally radical idea of freedom of speech. 
Sure. Um, so I think there's an interesting possibility put out there by David Graeber, an author who wrote a book called The Dawn of Everything. One thing he does is he tends to refer to the fact that small-scale society and familial society tended to share things. He refers to that as communism. And I'm like, can you try to, like, <laughs> do you, I, why don't I just call it Nazism then? Kind of like, like for, exactly. for people it's, with... It's kind of like seeing with, a watch with, in a movie about Abraham Lincoln and being like, oh, yeah, they, they had watches back then. It's a bit anachronistic, but yes. Yeah, but there is some really interesting stuff in the book about how prior to kings and sort of the dawn of civilization as we see it, that there are probably more sort of tribal arrangements that involve more deliberation and more speech than we probably understand today. But the first one that we could really see, of course, was Athenian democracies. And there's more than just Athens that had democratic norms within ancient Greece, but those eventually died out. They had two ideas of freedom of speech. There was Isagoria, which is sort of a tradition of rational discourse. And Parisia is like invective. Again, not what they originally meant, but what they've come to mean. And I think that's helpful because there's a great book by Teresa Bajan called Mere Civility that talks about how a way you could understand the difference between the America and Europe is that Europeans have a more Isagoria kind of idea of freedom of speech, and America has Isagoria and Parisia. She talks about Roger Williams, interestingly enough. She attributes to our religious founding to one of the reasons why we're so adamant about freedom of speech. So, okay, jump ahead. I'm going to try, try to go a little faster. <laughs> so, printing press at in the 1450s, and immediately there are people saying, wow, we should have freedom of the press. And to be clear, even at the founding of the United States, they didn't mean newspapers specifically they meant literally the machine hmm. and that's something a lot of people don't know the first amendment the press that it's referring to is the press the machine yeah. and this was you know a pretty radical idea but what's called the enlightenment i'm with yuval harari i think it should be called the discovery of ignorance because <laughs> it really is about people going wait a second all these folk intuitions we have about things work every time we test them they're totally wrong. And that's one of the reasons why where scientific method and all these things come from. And that's the dawn of what Jonathan Rausch, who's one of my heroes and one of my friends. We've had him on the podcast. Oh, he's amazing. He's a great guy. In a book called Kindly Inquisitors about what he calls the dawn of liberal science, which has two rules. No argument is ever truly over. And nobody gets to call special authority to shut down debate and discussion. So you have these incredible ideas and societies that were democratic. There was such an expansion of wealth, you know, like in the United States, the 19th century, human freedom, innovation, all these amazing things came out of it. But it wasn't until about 1925 that the U.S. started taking the First Amendment really seriously. That's a long story all by itself. But we were lucky enough to grow up, uh, me more than you, <laughs> because I was growing up more in the 80s, that we were at a time when free speech culture, like the idea that everyone's entitled to their own opinion, to each their own, not my cup of tea, all of these idioms that actually convey sort of small d democratic norms were very popular and very well appreciated. And also free speech law was coming up. And that progression started a little bit in the 20s, really picked up in the late 50s, and it's been going up ever since. Unfortunately, what I've seen in working on campuses or also attending school, even in the 90s, is that there's been a split that essentially free speech law is continuing to improve free speech, which had been very popular, you know, on the left and been kind of almost considered sacred on the left, certainly when I was a kid. And I consider myself left of center as well. There was a disenchantment about it that, to be frank, I think came from people tend to like freedom of speech when they're the unpopular opinion of the room. But when they get power, 
you get a little more kind of like, think of all the things we could do if we just were the ones who made these enlightened censorship decisions. I think that's totally spot on. And it's fascinating being a Christian because we've seen this throughout history. The SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, is now the largest evangelical denomination in the country. But it has not always been the largest. And if you go back just 50 years, there was a strong Baptist tradition of what was called a disestablishmentarianism, which was the idea that you don't want church and state to mix at all. Let's keep those two yeah. things separate. And the reason why was because they were on the outs. They weren't like the mainline denominations that had a lot of power and authority. And so I'll often get into debates with people on Twitter who are Baptists and say, hey, we need to put those things back together. I go, hey, just so you know, when you guys didn't have the power, you didn't think this. And it's within living memory. And we can produce documents from Baptists that were actually commending the Supreme Court for removing prayer from schools. And so I think you're making a broad point that Christians need to heed. And I do think it goes back to some American roots, which is that not entirely, but there was certainly a group of Americans who came to the United States in part because they were religious dissenters, and they wanted freedom of religion. And so that has shaped part of the ethos and the spirit of how we think about free speech in this country. Yeah, agreed. And that book that I mentioned by Teresa Bajan, I think it's perfect for your audience. I think she's religious herself. It's like a missing link in our understanding of freedom of speech because Roger Williams, there was an attempt to sort of rehabilitate him as being like a proto-liberal, which is nonsense. He was a strident, deeply religious person, but believed things should be settled through argument. I actually want to get into this idea because I want to come to the modern era in just a second, talk about the 80s, the 90s, and then the modern era. But before we get there, I want to ask some questions around these ideas about persuasion and coercion. And my first question is, it gets back to the heart of why is free speech so important, but maybe I'll frame it a little more tightly. Why do you think free speech is important for healthy politics? Oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah, what a great question. You really can't have a democratic country without freedom of speech. Basically, like if you claim that you've had a democratic country, but you can't make the following 50 political arguments, that's not a democracy. That's a dictatorship. That's autocracy. So you need some minimal part, particularly when you get to self-representative government. And even enlightened despots realize that letting the peasants complain actually gives you some information that maybe you're going to want to heed or else your head's going to be in a bucket. (laughs) So you, you need it in a democracy to sort through problems and discussions. And one of the things that is underappreciated is there was this wonderful report that George Marshall did right after World War II talking about how, why did America win the war, World War II, against the incredibly powerful Nazis and the quite powerful Japanese empire? And what was their special advantage? And they talked about lots of different things that America had. I mean, first of all, our industry was absolutely insanely huge. But also the fact that we could solve problems Mm. because we had a free press. It was limited. There was restrictions on the press during World War II, but it wasn't anywhere like you would see in the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany or certainly Japan. That actually that helped us see problems that we needed to see. I always thought that was a really impressive sort of realization that this transfer of information, the fact that it points out the bad stuff, that's actually the stuff you need to know. No. Oh, that's so profound. And what you're making me think of is it's not just good for a body politic. I mean, democracies are historically fragile. <laughs> and so yeah. the fact that we've had a democracy as long as we have had it, it's a testament to the need for freedom of speech, even weaker forms of freedom of speech in the early era of the United States. But you're also bringing in a different point, which is that freedom of speech is important for discovery, for learning. Like a lot of people don't realize that, this is just one small example, you could go back to the New York Times in the pre-World War II era, and there was a reporter who was consistently reporting about nuclear technologies and nuclear warfare. So this was a public conversation that was 
was happening. And because he was reporting on it in the paper of record, it was creating little spots across the country where more people were beginning to discover this stuff. Now, they had to shut it down <laughs> when World War II happened because they didn't want the technology to the ideas. I mean, they literally went through and scrubbed the New York Times. They tried to collect the newspapers. But it's a fascinating point to say, if he hadn't written about this, you wouldn't have seen various academics and scholars across the country dabbling in this technology, trying to understand nuclear physics, which obviously leads in a rather catastrophic way to the end of World War II. The dissemination of information for the good of science is crucial, but also just for knowing your society as it is. I call my preferred theory of freedom of speech the lab and the looking glass theory, because I think everything about people is worth knowing. And I think it's absolutely kidding yourself if you think that you know anything about what your society looks like with a caveat for, but I'm going to discourage from people from saying what they really think. Mm. And then people will point to kind of like, what about crazy conspiracy theories? And I'm like, I think you're thinking about this wrong. Knowing are the lizard people under the Denver airport ruling the world? <laughs> no, hopefully I'm not breaking anyone's heart who's listening right now. But is it useful to know that your uncle thinks they are? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's essential. It's also useful to know that he doesn't actually think that. I think when you take seriously the value of knowing the world as it is, you have to include what people really think and why, or else you only know a tiny sliver of what reality actually looks like. Mm. So I want to see if there's a difference between you and me. So I'm going to press in here for just a second. You can tell me if you agree or disagree. I'm going to flip out. Yeah, let's see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) So personally, as a Christian, I don't think that free speech is a moral right or necessarily even quite a moral good because I do think that there is some speech that's immoral. However, however, I do think that free speech is a instrumental good. It's good and it's worth protecting because of the things you just said. It helps the body politic be healthy, and I think it promotes persuasion over coercion. So the Apostle Paul very famously rejected coercion as a method of Christian evangelism, and he said in one of his letters to the church in Rome, he said, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And so he was elevating persuasion in that case over physical coercion. Persuasion's always been or should have been the norm in Christian history, has not always been the norm. And so this means that a pluralistic environment where we're free to persuade people is instrumentally, for me as a Christian, it's instrumentally preferable to a chilled speech environment. And yet I would want to say, no, free speech is not a moral right. It's not necessarily a moral good. So I'm curious, would you agree with that or would you disagree with that? I definitely actually think that my preferred theory is essentially an instrumentalist explanation of why you need freedom of speech that leads to a near absolutist position, at least when it comes to expression of opinion. And First Amendment law is not nearly as unsophisticated as sometimes people think. I mean, defamation is not protected, but you need to have a high bar for it or else it will destroy political speech, for example. Child pornography is not protected. Obscenity, as defined by basically hardcore pornography, is an exception to freedom of speech. Incitement to imminent lawless action is not protected. Sedition. Sedition is a hard one. (laughs) The bar for sedition is not just expression of opinion, though. Mm, Yes. But I do think that there is a moral argument to be made for freedom of speech speech and that it comes from, I'm not religious myself, but knowing God's creation as it is. So in a lot of ways, hearing what you just said is you predicted my next question. I was wondering if you'd say, yes, it is a moral right. And you'd say, well, hold on, there has to be some lines. We all draw some lines in the sand whenever it comes to free speech, which you just did. You said, look, our first amendment legally, it's sensible. It's not entirely comprehensive, but it's thoughtful. And there's lots of lines that get drawn in the sand. So that's a really helpful thing for me. So in a lot of ways, I think we are in agreement here. So that's interesting. I love that. I did want to add one thing. The thing that makes Europeans think we're crazy free speech people. Well, actually, a lot of things make Europeans think we're crazy because we don't have a history of allowing governments quite as expansive as they do, Yes, which I think is 
frankly, to our credit. And so I'm like the bad American who goes over there. It's like rude to say that we think that our systems are better like, among academics. I'm like, no, on this one, we're right. Um, yeah, you guys are getting this entirely wrong. But the principle that I always point out is the real distinction is the bedrock principle, which comes from a Texas v. Johnson, which is a case about flag burning, you know, like really radioactive stuff. And it's saying that if we have one bedrock principle in First Amendment laws, you can't ban something simply because people find it offensive. And that is a very smart rule because what's offensive is different from person to person. It's different from year to year. It's different between economic classes. It's even somewhat different between men and women. It's different from different faith traditions. It's too subjective to have that, particularly in a deeply pluralistic democracy. But that's the thing that is the hardest thing for people from other countries to accept. Like my mom's British. There is a sense that there is a certain kind of abstract British person out there. There's an idea of a national character as being, it can be likened to an individual. Germany, France kind of has a little bit of the same thing. America's never had that. We've always understood, and it makes us much healthier, in my opinion, because, you know, people from Virginia never thought they were anything like people from Massachusetts, like people from Georgia, like people from, don't get me started about California. There was always a sense that we were a weird mixture of very different people. I think what you're saying is fascinating, and it actually relates to the free speech culture stuff you're bringing up. And we were talking before the interview, I said, hey, I'm a child of the 90s, which means I'm very much so a child of a relatively relativistic, morally relativistic era and moment. Our songs, our TV shows had a laissez-faire, what's best for you, you can do. If it doesn't hurt me, I'm not bothered. That was always a mentality. And it's interesting for me as a millennial, though, because I've often wondered if the current movement towards almost a puritanical self-righteousness in the social justice type movement is almost a equal opposite reaction to what people like me grew up with. We grew up with such a thin, relativistic vision of morality and ethics. There is such a thing as good and evil, and we needed someone to define it. And you go for years, you know, of not having any <laughs> a definition of good and evil, and now all of a sudden, you know, you can drink from the fire hydrant. So I think there's some interesting things to discuss there. But I would actually love to start this part of the conversation back in the 1980s and what you have called, I think, the first great age of political correctness. So free speech was not particularly well protected on campus for a long time. When you look back in history, by 1940, you had some agreement on on what academic freedom and what minimal free speech looked like. And it wasn't until, you know, 1964 that you start having, you know, something that would call itself a free speech movement. Now, to throw a little bit of cold water on that, some of the people who were in that movement were very much as the great Nat Hadentoff, famous jazz critic and free speech defender who was a big fan of fires, would say free speech for me, but not for thee, which is very <laughs> typical in human history, how often we rationalize that. So what's remarkable is that 1964, you have the beginning of the free speech movement. Some of it's extremely sincere, some of it a little more mixed. By 1974, you have really powerful decisions at the Supreme Court saying that even deeply offensive freedom of speech is protected for students. And the students was the next part that had to happen because already in the 1950s, there were good decisions defending the rights of professors and the 60s as well. So you have this movement in 64 by 1974, you know, it's triumphant in the Supreme Court. And by 1984, you're in the middle of this anti-free speech movement led by people like originally sort of intellectual godfather was the Marxist philosopher Herbert Marcuse. This always blows me away. And I always think Americans can be so spoiled. This is where the immigrant kid comes out at me, where it's kind of like, so you came from 
Germany. You came from Frankfurt, Germany, came to the U.S. and thought this was the worst of all possible worlds. It's kind of like, okay, I actually think there was a lot worse places to live Mm. than America in the 40s and 50s. But he wrote an article called Repressive Tolerance, Mm. talking about how the truly enlightened society wouldn't just allow freedom of speech, it would censor. And in this case, he really does say conservatives, because that was the way he looked at things. He thought that liberals were weak and that conservatives ran everything. I don't attribute that to the entire success of the movement or how important it was but he can't be overlooked. And you had people like Richard Delgado already writing by, I think, even 1980. He's a scholar at university, used to be University of Pittsburgh, and I think it's University of Alabama. And he's one of the co-founders of the critical race theory movement in law schools. I couldn't disagree more with Richard Delgado on this. He wanted to argue for hate speech limitations, limitations on sexist, racist, hurtful speech, which sounds morally persuasive to a degree. But it also, I think it was inspired by this very elitist, and I think it's necessarily elitist to say, it's like, and who gets to decide that? It's like, oh, the enlightened people. Who are the enlightened people? Oh, it's us. People usually are like, if they're pro-censorship, they think they're the ones who are going to be doing the calling. (laughs) So this led to the speech codes movement on campus in the 1980s, which was amazing, only 20 years after the beginning of the free speech movement. It was surprisingly popular, but it wasn't very popular off campus. Off campus, liberals and conservatives thought it was pretty ridiculous. They made fun of political correctness. They made movies and satired it. It was sort of a joke. These codes were defeated in courts of law and courts of public opinion. And by 95, you know, as I say in that recent piece, you start having, you know, movies like PCU with Jeremy Piven making fun of political correctness. It seemed kind of like the fever had passed. We were back to understanding free speech again on campus. And they were defeated in court uniformly. But amazingly, what people don't realize is even though there was a sense of like, ooh, thank goodness this crazy PC thing is over, that things were actually just about to get a lot worse on campus for the next 20 years. But the problem was people weren't paying very close attention to it anymore. So before we hop into the next part of the story, during this period in the 80s, during kind of the rise of PC, who were the enforcers? During that time, it was largely a sort of like professor and student movement, student activist movement in the 1980s. Administrators, I'm sure, were involved, but the real explosion of administrators really happened more towards the end of the 80s and into the 90s. And really, we now live in an age of universities utterly dominated by staff and administrators, not full-term professors. But there was a sense that this was a moral good, particularly as affirmative action became more commonly used on campus. There was a sense that you had to keep people from being insulting on basis of race. And I get all those motivations, but it works out exactly like any First Amendment lawyer is going to tell you it's going to work out. It's not actually going to be used strictly against the people you think it should be used against. Right away, the University of Michigan, it started being used against Black students who were saying dismissive things about white students. No surprise there from a First Amendment lawyer. But also for my entire career, because speech codes actually increased in number after the last one was defeated at Stanford two years before I landed there, they actually increased in number on campus. And guess what? they tend to look more like what the preferences are of the people enforcing them. So students would get in trouble, professors would get in trouble and fired. And all the while, viewpoint diversity among professors started to really plummet in the late 90s. It was already about three to one liberal to conservative before then, and now it's 10 to one. There's literally departments that have literally no 
conservatives whatsoever. I'd love to keep pressing in on these years because now we're kind of transitioning to the late Clinton, Bush and Obama era. And I just want to say this because, you know, the first person I ever voted for was Barack Obama in 2008. And so I was in college in this time period. And I very much so saw free speech or free speech culture as being something that was on the left, not something that was on the right. And it was strange because I graduated in 2010 and then I was on campus doing a lot of work after that. It was strange to watch this major shift that happens. And you dated it to 2014. But what I would love and what I appreciated so much about your piece and reason was that you helped me understand what happened between 1995 that case, the Stanford case that you were just mentioning, which banned speech or other expression intended to insult or signifies that was cast down. What happened between 1995 and 2014 that changed the free speech culture on campus? I mean, one, the media largely thought this was over, you know, and that it had been won. They were helped out, unfortunately, by other free speech experts who wrote books claiming that all the speech codes were destroyed by 1995 and given a burial. I mean, I hate to call it a lie, but it was so irresponsible to not even bother to look at the policies that were actually in the books. Yeah. Because policies that were overturned at University of Connecticut, for example, University of Connecticut had a ban on inappropriately directed laughter. Yeah, I know. Be careful where you laugh. I would have failed at that one, unfortunately. It's good I didn't go there. Exactly. So people got to be careful about that. So that got defeated way back in 1990. We found that code verbatim. It was a longer code that banned also inconsiderate jokes at Drexel University. And we found this a lot, that codes that were explicitly overturned from 1988 to 1995, still on the books at at schools, and about 79% of schools that we surveyed, we did our first comprehensive survey in about 2008, had insanely unconstitutional speech codes, what we call red light speech codes. So after 95, even though the professors became somewhat disenchanted with the speech codes movement, even though the students who were showing up on campus were largely the kids of the boomers who are much more pro-free speech, the administrators really kind of picked up the torch and created new speech codes, created entirely new institutions, things called bias-related incident programs or bias-related teams that would literally like police people's dry erase boards to see if they'd written offensive things. And how did those get around speech codes, the BRTs? In some ways, I read your work, it seemed like it's a bit of a workaround to enforcing speech codes. Yeah, the BRT codes, and I remember being presented for this at an administrator conference back in 2003. It was just blown away by what a bad idea I thought this was. So they would have administrators going around looking on dry erase boards for students writing offensive things to each other. And of course, you know, 19, 20-year-olds, you know, who are good friends with each other, you know, would put inappropriate jokes to each other, you know, on their dry erase boards. And the first study that I saw of it concluded that the dorm where they implemented the BRTs saw a significant increase in offensive material because, yeah, you tell a bunch of 19-year-olds that they're going to be policing you for what they say, they're going to make it worse. You know, totally predictable. So you would think that would have killed the BRT movement back then, but it kept on going strong. So speech codes were overturned, and even those schools still passed them. And there's a quick distinction being made. Private schools are not bound by the First Amendment, except in the state of California, where they're indirectly bound by the First Amendment through something called the Leonard Law, non-sectarian schools, that is. But they are bound by their promises. And most schools promise academic freedom and freedom of speech. When it comes to public schools, schools uh, like big state schools, they are bound by the First Amendment. And so they have to, they're legally obligated to provide freedom of speech. But due to the lack of popularity, once people knew what they were of speech codes, they tried to come up with sort of a workaround that would allow you to, in a just barely constitutional way, push students to be more 
for lack of a better word, PC, that would just barely evade constitutional prohibition. So basically, the way they set them up is by you can report people. Sometimes you can report people anonymously, but we're not going to punish them. But we might send an email saying how insensitive these things were. So they're like, oh, this is just more speech. And it's like, yeah, you're also supposed to not create orthodoxies in higher ed. So this is a way of sort of enforcing norms in a just barely constitutional way, but also implicitly with the threat of punishment. So, so far, some of these BRTs have been challenged just like we would have expected. Some of them get ruled unconstitutional. Others don't. So during the period between the first and second grade age of political correctness, administrators got a lot more numerous They got a lot more ideological. They got a lot more tools in their tool belt, including things like BRT. And the viewpoint diversity of the professoriate plummeted. And my first book, Unlearning Liberty, is all about the period from about 2001 to 2012. And there are a lot of crazy cases in there. But they overwhelmingly come from administrators. The big change was right at the end of 2013, but going to 2014, was the arrival on campus of students who were unlike the kids of the boomers. They were much more free speech skeptical. They wanted disinvitations. They wanted new speech codes. They want microaggression policies. And I want to be clear, like normally in social science, distinctions are pretty, they're slow sloping curves of distinctions. This was not slow. This was like lightning hit right around 2013, 2014. Something profound had changed. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. The change, if I've understood you correctly, is that in the pre-2014 era, this is largely a administration-run, administration-led movement, so much so that, like you said, you had students who, when they heard the rules, would actively rebel against them, as 19-year-olds are wont to do. (laughs) And something shifts in 2013-2014 where this changes from an administrator-led movement to an administrator and student-led movement. And interestingly, it's happening precisely at the time you wouldn't expect it to happen. If many of things, not all of them, but if many of these cases are coming from the left, then you would think it would happen in a time where you're seeing an increase in conservative ideology or conservative professors, but the exact opposite is happening. So why? Why in 2014 do you think this shift happened? 
Well, I wrote a book with my friend Jonathan Haidt. He's a famous social psychologist called Coddling the American Mind. And the whole 95,000-word book is trying to figure (laughs) out what was so different about these students hitting campus. And we come up with six causal threads, as we call them, pretentiously, in the book. And then we even came up with a seventh sense. But I can go through them really quickly. That'd be great. And one thing we try to be really clear about, given my own social economic upbringing, I always want to be very clear. The problems facing the bottom half socioeconomically of the United States, even the bottom three quarters of the United States, are very different than the problems that we're talking about in Coddling the American Mind. Because one of the things we were trying to figure out, what was going on, particularly at the most influential schools in the country? Now, I find it deeply offensive in some ways that we let these schools be so influential for our lives. But even on the right and the left, you know, a lot of the top Republicans are also Yale and Harvard, you know, (laughs) and Stanford graduates as well. Well, and it was really helpful for me when I read your piece in Reason, because one of the things that people do and critique your view is they say, look, there's not that many cases of these offensive speech codes happening across the nation. There's 6,000 universities, and it's not affecting that many of them. And you made the point that of the top 100 schools in the United States, according to U.S. News and World Report, 65 have had a professor targeted since 2015. And then you said, meanwhile, the top 10 schools have had an average of seven incidents each. And why I think this matters tremendously is twofold. It's what you just said. Number one is the most prestigious and the most financially lucrative institutions, their habits, their behaviors, their policies tend to trickle down to the less prestigious and less lucrative universities. And so that really matters for the education. And to the whole rest of the country. The whole rest of the country. And that's the other half, which is that our elite, and some people are offended by that word, it's a simple truth. The people who are going to be in media organizations, the people who are in Washington, the people who are leading some of the most successful businesses, they come from these schools. And so again, there's going to be a trickle-down effect that happens there as well to the rest of our population. So I think it's actually really worthy to say, look, we're focusing on the problems of the creme de la creme of what are often the most wealthy and elite individuals in our society, regardless of their skin color and their sexuality and everything else that might be associated with it. So maybe let's go back to those six or seven things that you saw as causal threads, specifically among this group of people. And that's the point I was trying to make, was that those elite schools really matter. Now, firefights cases all throughout higher education, and now since we've expanded, we fight them off campus as well. Yeah. But the kind of problems you see at state schools are generally, and you do see some really bad problems in other state schools, they tend to be less ideological. They tend to be more just old-fashioned abuses of power, which also happen all the time as well. So the six causal threads for the type of students who would head to campus, we thought it was interesting that paranoid parenting, there was an uptick in that in the 90s, which is ironic because because crime was going down, infant mortality was going down, accidental death for kids was going down, partially due to successful safety measures and campaigns that were done in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It was a great success, but there was kind of a sense that any additional improvement gets to the smallest bit more safety is worth doing. So we call this mentality, and I always credit Pamela Paretsky, she's a psychologist who was our chief researcher during the book, coining the phrase safetyism. Yeah. Basically, the worship of safety, Mm. an exaggerated sort of fear of even emotional slights. So paranoid parenting, though probably the one that surprised us the most related to parenting was lack of free play and lack of free unstructured time, which we didn't see coming. But we really do think that if you're scheduled your kids from six o'clock in the morning to end of the day, they don't get the time to get used to the give and take of interpersonal interactions that you desperately need to be an adult 
but you also need to be a citizen in a democratic republic. And we've created so many systems that intermediate conflict for people, you know, in K through 12, in higher education, and for that matter, even in the corporate <laughs> world now with human resources. My father was a high school administrator. And so I actually watched as he experienced in real time during the 2000s and then early 2000s, an uptick of parents who were coming in trying to mediate their child's conflict. And I remember him yes. telling me frequently, your child won't know what to do when they're in real life and they have a conflict and you're not there to solve it for them. Or if you try to solve it, it's going to cause them a major life problem. In other words, they weren't developing emotional resilience. They weren't developing conflict resolution skills that are just fundamental, yep. basic things someone needs to survive in any society. Yeah, agreed. And of course, people were always saying, oh, no, the real world will sharpen them up or knock this out of them. And my response had always been like, listen, if enough students are coming out of the elite schools that are wildly disproportionately influential, far more than they should be, it's going to change the real world. And it has. Yes which I think has kind of panned out. So why colleges? There was a mass bureaucratization that I was talking about. Partially sort of corporatization has something to do with it, but also ideology, like different ideas of ideology, social justice were promulgated in the early part of the millennium, partially coming out of education schools, partially coming out of the anti-bullying movement, the wokeness or whatever you want to call it is a real thing. But the thing that we think sped everything up was social media. And social media made trends like polarization that we were getting more polarized prior to the real explosion of social media, but it sped things up like crazy. And we think that it's also one of the reasons why you start having really high rates of, and this is the most heartbreaking part, of anxiety, depression, suicide among young people. And the original article that I wrote with Jonathan Haidt in 2015, as someone who struggled, I was hospitalized as a risk to myself. I tried to commit suicide more than once, actually, in 2007. And I was hospitalized. And after that, it was time to face the fact that I would get these depressive episodes and they're getting increasingly dangerous. And as I was recovering, and to be clear, just so your audience knows, I took pharmaceuticals. I always want to say that because I think sometimes people will hear what I'm saying and say, oh, I can just solve this on my own. I'm like, no, 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 do everything your doctor tells you to do. But the thing that made the biggest long-term difference was cognitive behavioral therapy. And if your listeners don't know what this is, it's the most investigated intervention for mood disorders, including anxiety and depression that exists. And it's this really profound realization of the wisdom of the ancients that essentially reason and rationality can actually make you a happy person, but only if you apply it in a very deliberate way. And this is the insight of cognitive behavioral therapy, is that when you're depressed or anxious, you have exaggerated thoughts in your heads that can be called cognitive distortions. Sometimes they're catastrophizing, like a date doesn't go well and you just say to yourself, I'm never going to get married. I'm going to die alone, like all this kind of stuff. Or you just get off of an interview and you say to yourself, I know that guy hated me. And that's called mind reading. I know that this person, they're definitely not going to hire me. That's fortune telling. And I know if I don't get this job, my career is ruined. That's catastrophizing. There's also things like overgeneralizing, binary thinking that everything is either a zero or a one there's no in between. These are all bad mental habits and anxious and depressed people have even more of them. And if you can actually train yourself and it has to be deliberate, it has to be multiple times a day, sit down. And when you have one of these really exaggerated thoughts that tell you you're broken, you question it. You know, essentially you ask yourself, is this a cognitive distortion? Yes, this is catastrophizing, this is overgeneralizing, these things. And even though it effect feels subtle at first, after a while, the kind of self-talk that I'd hear in my brain that was really harmful, it just didn't sound true anymore, which was amazing liberation. So I saw this when I was recovering in 2008 on up, 
And I was like, but you know what's funny? It's kind of like administrators are teaching young people to catastrophize, to overgeneralize, to engage in binary thinking, to mind read, to do all of this stuff. Emotional reasoning, the idea that if you feel something, it must mean that something else in the world has to change. Sometimes you're just sad. You know, I have a four and a six-year-old, and it's important to understand that. And my thinking then was, okay, so it seems like administrators are selling cognitive distortions, whether they mean to or not, usually with the best of intentions, but students aren't buying it. And the first thing I noticed in 2013 and 2014, when everything started getting really bad with students, is they weren't just demanding new speech codes. They weren't just demanding disinvitations. They were demanding these things with medicalized rationales saying that if this person comes to my campus, actually, it's usually not if I, if this other person over there, this unspecified, easily harmed person, it will harm them medically. It will be traumatic for them. They will not recover. And I was like, wow, this is not just bad for freedom of speech. These are cognitive distortions. These are things that if you believe them, you're going to feel constantly under assault, constantly depressed. So 2015, we said, this is bad for free speech. This is bad for mental health. And man, free speech has not done very well since then on campus. It's gotten a lot worse, but mental health is the scariest part of all. It is plummeted among young people. Well, that was going to be my question, and I hadn't thought of this until you started sharing it right now, and you might not be able to answer it, but I want to ask a causal question. Did social media make us mentally unhealthy, which therefore made us more susceptible to cognitive distortions, or did we have a group Mm -hmm. of college administrators who trained people (laughs) in cognitive distortions, which were then spread? you know, almost like a social contagion through social media, which has in turn made an entire generation, my generation, the one underneath me, depressed, anxious, and full of suicidal ideation. You asked me an or question. My answer is yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. For this reason, I think that education schools have a disproportionate influence on younger people because they train who studies in K through 12. And as sweet and wonderful as so many people I know who went to education schools are, they are some of the most ideological schools in there. And yes. they did have this kind of you know, fragility mindset for young people that you should assume people are fragile and easily hurt, um, which seems compassionate, but actually really isn't, Mm. at least in practice. Yeah, when helping hurts. That some of this stuff, you know, started in ed schools, even in the 80s and 90s and became popular there. And it's one of the ways it disseminated. I think another way it disseminated was by response to also with something coming out of social media was the anti-bullying, and I'm going to call it this, scare of 2010. Yeah. And I call it a scare because the cases that were most prominent, including Tyler Clemente, this was a student at Rutgers who killed himself after his roommate videotaped him in a same-sex encounter with another man. It's like, that's not even legal in the state of New Jersey. And he also wasn't a child. This was a college student. So he already did something that was illegal. There was also the Phoebe Prince case, which was a Irish girl in the U.S. who allegedly was bullied to death. Emily Bazelon, who's generally sympathetic to a lot of this stuff, wrote this wonderful book called Sticks and Stones saying, no, it was much more complicated than that. It's not like people don't kill themselves for narratives as simply as people were mean to me. I certainly wasn't about to kill myself for simple reasons. And I think that our response to it ended up leading to what we call the three great untruths in coddling the American mind. And the way we talk about this is it's as if we're giving young people the worst possible advice that might sound initially kind of persuasive, but is really terrible from wisdom traditions, both Western and Eastern and in between, that are bad ways to think of the world in terms of modern psychology. Yeah. And also things that we can just say will make you miserable if you believe them. And we call these the three great untruths. The first one is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. You know, mm-hmm. play on Nietzsche. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And of course, you know, there's limitations to Nietzsche's original quote. But at the same time, if you tell people that anything that like 
is difficult for you is going to harm you in some permanent way. That's an awful thing to tell somebody. Always trust your feelings, which sounds cute and sounds like, oh, that's, that, that doesn't sound so bad. It's like, no, that actually, as initially nice as that may sound, it's actually terrible advice. <laughs> you shouldn't actually always trust your feelings. You should try to figure out what your feelings are trying to tell you. Yeah. I mean, for me, the thing that makes me the angriest I found in watching the way I think is when I realize that I've done something stupid. You know, like that's what I'm like, oh, I'm so mad. I'm like, oh, this is usually the way I react when I realize I've done something dumb. And when I hear that idea of following your feelings as someone myself who's also battled with depression my whole life, I don't want to be dramatic. But in some real senses, my life depends on me not believing <laughs> what I feel. Absolutely. Because if I go down that path, if I go down that rabbit hole, I go to a dark place. And so I actually have to question those feelings. And as you pointed out, they often point to something else that I need to dig into, that yeah. I need to think about. And so it's a healthy questioning. It's not a discrediting of my feelings. It's an interrogation of them that allows me to go deeper in relationship with other people. 100%. You know, I was proud that I could explain that in like a paragraph and then Susan David did it in like a pithy little phrase, which was <laughs> feelings are information, not instructions, which I think is entirely right. Because sometimes, yeah, you're mad because for the most justifiable reason that someone's trying to take advantage of you, which seems to be these sort of like evolutionary sort of justification for anger is essentially to defend yourself. And then the last one that I think you'll see all over the place, and I think this one definitely became more popular due to a not perfectly well thought out anti-bullying training is that life is a battle between good people and evil people. And for most of my life, and my father's Russian Orthodox, so my father would always say things like, there is something beautiful and something ugly in every person and every culture. You know, like he would talk about kind of like the complexity of people and how the person who's selfish and evil in Christian theology can still be redeemed. But if it's really just it's just good versus evil. And in a hyper-politicized environment to begin with, like that's not going to serve you very well. And you're always going to feel under attack. And I do. I actually think this is a profoundly Christian thought. Christians ranging from, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said the line between good and evil doesn't run between us. It runs down every human heart. Or you can think about C.S. Lewis, who talked about humans as glorious ruins. So we see both the corrupt and the bad in humanity and the good. And I love that point of saying, look, that doesn't run between people groups. It doesn't run between ideologies. It runs down every single human heart. Here's the thing. We are running out of time. And so I'm going to shift this <laughs> very suddenly and abruptly because I have two pages of questions about how this lands on college campuses and then how this is coming. As Andrew Sullivan said, everybody's on campus now. We're all on campus and, now, yeah. No, he's totally right. And so now we're all experiencing this in our workplaces. But I actually want to shift to a totally different field because I haven't heard you speak about this and I'm so curious. So I have to take my chance, take my shot. And this has sure. to do with social media, social media censoring and everything around that. So let me try to just set this up. Earlier, we discussed that the value of free speech was instrumental, something on which I think we both kind of agreed. And namely that free speech leads to discovery. It leads to the spread of the truth. It allows us to have disconfirmation, realize when we're wrong. <laughs> like you said, when we realize that we were ignorant. But social media has shown time and again how free speech can actually do the opposite. You know, Mark Twain, he has this great phrase. He says, a lie can travel around the world while the truth is still lacing up its boots. Yeah. And I think we've seen this happen in tremendous ways in the social media area. We've sure. seen foreign Trolls use misinformation in tremendous ways online. I mean, here's some headlines that I've pulled from foreign trolls that were posted widely by Americans. ISIS caused a chemical explosion in Louisiana. A deadly phosphorus leak is poisoning Ohio residents. Ukrainian fighter jets shot down a commercial flight. Alaskans petition to secede from the Union. This is before her death. Queen Elizabeth warns about the imminent onset of World War III. It'd be scarier if it was after her death. <laughs> yeah, it'd be scarier after that. So in many of these cases, the 
misinformation is to erode public trust, to destabilize democracy, which we said that's the whole point of free speech. It allows this fragile system of democracy to continue, but it's being eroded by conspiracy theories. And so in response, we've seen big tech act to censor, you know, speech more and more. But that has its drawbacks. You know, we just found out that the FBI infamously requested that Facebook censor the Hunter Biden laptop scandal. And Twitter did so with, you know, total abandon. And so, of course, it turns out now that the FBI was wrong. But we have these social media companies that are in almost an impossible situation. So one of our listeners in our private online community named Bruce Baker, he put it this way. He says, it seems inevitable that social media platforms need moderators to keep things from getting out of hand. But the biases of those moderators will factor into how they control the conversation. So how do we think about free speech (laughs) in the Internet era? Do we really want a online free for all? Uh, yeah, no, it's a great question. It's one of the major questions of our time. And I bring you back to 1521. <laughs> Is this going to be about the Tudors? <laughs> It's going to be with Tudors. It's going to be Henry VIII. So the comparison that I make is to the printing press. And it's kind of funny because like when people read Colleague the American Mind, they're like, Lukianoff and Haidt, they hate technological shifts. I'm sure people were saying the same things about the printing press. And I'm like, you mean the invention that led to 200 years of religious war, <laughs> a revival of the witch trials that came with a lot of downside, yes. to be clear here, people? Talk about the defining disruptive technology. And I talk about 1521 from the point of view of like, If that was your perspective, you'd be like, this thing was not worth it. This invention was by no means worth it. And I feel like we are in a moment where the social media revolution is so recent that we can overwhelmingly just see the downside because it is insanely disruptive. And it has to be because when you introduce millions of people into a conversation like the printing press did, that's going to be highly disruptive. When you introduce billions of people into a conversation, there is no way you're not going to go through a pretty crazy period that we are currently still in. So I get actually a little more worried about what the cure to the problem is than the disease itself. Because I think the disease is kind of inevitable. Like if you, because eventually if you have an internet, if you have this kind of technology, the ability to do things like people talking at an unparalleled level, that was going to happen. The question is, how do we manage it as it's coming? So when I get more worried about the cure is that some of the data on how much people believe misinformation and disinformation, people aren't stupid. There's a book by Hugo Mercier called Not Born Yesterday, which is basically making the point that I'd like to point out here that actually in all those studies talking about how dumb people are, most of the people actually made the smart decision. (laughs) And this gets left out of a lot of these discussions on cognitive biases, which is different from distortions. And what I'm afraid of, and this is something that that, um, when they're going after Rogan, for misinformation, disinformation, for talking about COVID and talking to some people who are somewhat skeptical about it, there seemed to be a very knee-jerky kind of idea that truth is easy to know and we already know it. And this blows me away because like, didn't we just get through COVID where at the beginning they were telling us, don't wear masks, they don't protect you. And then they changed their opinion on that. And it was really transparently because they thought it was for good. It was was a noble lie. As soon as the public thinks the experts have any inclination to lie to them for their own good, it's like, goodbye, trust and expertise. And I think that's why we're in, to use a fancy term, epistemic anarchy at the moment, (laughs) is because nobody trusts experts. Nobody trusts the institutions that are supposed to explain the world as it is. And not that they're completely untrustworthy, but if they do the smallest thing to make people not trust you, that's devastating. And unfortunately, they did a lot more than small things. 100%. I mean, so we've had Martin Gurry and Yuval Levin on the show who have both written extensively about this exact problem, which is that we've lost trust in our institutions, we've lost trust in our experts, and so now we have this revolt of the public where we seem 
to be more interested in burning things down than building anything up. But see, that's one of my main questions as I've tried to reflect on social media is if I see yeah. free speech as an instrumental good, it has a purpose. If it yep. stops serving the instrumental good, it's no longer good anymore. And that's one of my risks. If we look at social media and really it's just a conflagration of misinformation, hot takes, polarization, all kinds of social problems. Is there ever a point where we say, you know what? I actually want less free speech here because we're in a different era. This is not the era of the printing press. It doesn't bother me to create forums where they have very strict rules. The way I put it now, and Martin Gurry is someone who inspires me quite a bit, that social media proved capable of tearing down any institution, any idea, and any person. And that third one is cancel culture. And the truth is, that's not completely bad because in some institutions needed to be torn down. Some ideas needed to be torn down. And even some despicable people needed to be torn down. I'm thinking here of Harvey Weinstein. But it hasn't figured out how to build yet. So you had a very similar sort of period of sort of epistemic anarchy after the printing press where you have to figure out how to make it useful. And faith in top-down institutions to do that, and Height's a little bit more top-down than I am, I don't think that's going to work. I think that's just going to make people trust it even less. I think what you need are cultural adaptations to the reality of data, of social media. And I think you see this happening at least to some degree, however slowly. Yeah. You know, the fact that I can live on a Twitter neighborhood, as I call it sometimes, <laughs> where I'm mostly interacting, and Twitter can be, and it's worse, is horrible. I call it the best, place worst place on earth. But meanwhile, kind of like, you know, I get to listen to Steve Pinker, I get to listen to Martin Gurry, I get to interact in a way that actually is pretty positive. So I think that uh, one of the arguments I'm making in Canceling of the American Mind, which is my next book with Ricky Schlott, who's a young conservative writer who's just a 22-year-old genius, and I'm making the argument that you have to hold out hope that institutions of disconfirmation, disconfirmation is like what scientific method is and what academic freedom is supposed to be, is that essentially you have all these extra eyes on something so you can weed out what isn't true. Because even though truth is hard to know, what isn't true, you get there usually by subtraction, the whole via negativa idea, which is actually originally a Christian idea. But I think that one of the things we're arguing for is if we could just have spaces where we do a more disciplined job of arguing, this thing that is so disruptive and disruptive in the worst way to society could actually start being incredibly positive for us. And what happens so often is because we think the downside outweighs the long-term upside. We'll clamp down on it, we'll set up regulatory systems, and we'll kill the goose. So at this point, I'm a little bit more worried about the cure. I do absolutely take seriously the idea that a handful of billionaires being in control of the public square could turn awfully horribly wrong. Um, and we're actually writing a long piece on this. At the same time, <laughs> Watching Gavin Newsom, you know, in California and DeSantis and Abbott in Texas both come up with the idea that they want greater social media regulations, but of course, both pulling it in their own preferred partisan directions. Kind of like, this is what I'm scared of. I'm scared of it too. And that's why I wanted to ask you the question because I've yet to hear anyone who has a great answer to the problems. And you've highlighted all of the problems so well. It, but there is no simple Well, there is not. That's the most frustrating part of my message here <laughs> is that we are unavoidably in an anarchical period. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You know, a lot of things that we're going to do that might we might short-term fix it is going to drive people into places that are even worse to talk to each other. So it's going to be frustrating, but there's no simple solution. 
I think it is frustrating, and I don't have any answers either. That's why I'm asking. But this does seem different than the press. I mean, not just in terms of the technology, but also in terms of its implementation. You know, with the printing press, the early iterations were mostly printing out nonsensical gossip columns and all kinds of terrible things. And eventually the publishing industry comes in to control <laughs> what's being published long term. And we're almost in an inverse situation where you have these absolute giants, Meta, Google, and much smaller giant Twitter, although it's a chihuahua. The bark is bigger than the bite, but it matters. You have these institutions that are pretending to be publishers and platforms that are just applying their internal yeah. standards. But the reality is that they're private actors with corporate interests who wield tremendous social power. And as it stands, they have no legal or democratic accountability or very little legal yeah. or democratic accountability. And I don't know what to do with that because the publisher already yeah. exists. It's already there and it's not going to change. And I, I don't think we're going to see many new figures come into this technological space and have much success because achieving a network effect is costly and time consuming and they've already got sure. it. Sure. And that's the thing. I thought the Fifth Circuit opinion on why they think you shouldn't have been granted the injunction in the Texas law, I thought it was actually a very thoughtful piece of writing that people should read. But what it gets me to is middleware, that essentially I think there's a good argument for saying you can't engage in viewpoint discrimination on the basis of PayPal, on the basis of payment sources or web hosting in general, just like the old ISPs. It doesn't quite get me there in the name of Twitter and Facebook and all this kind of stuff. Because look at the pivot that Facebook has tried to do. They got really called out for their algorithms, making people much more polarized and much angry at each other. So they redid the algorithm to emphasize family content, you know, to re-up, you know, heartwarming things that your friends are saying. And I think they have the right to do that, like as an institution. However, I don't think the situation is fine the way it is. But be clear, you should always be afraid of the people with the guns. And what I mean by that is the government. Like you should always be afraid of the course of the power of government because where it begins is never where it ends. <laughs> So in this case, what we're going to try at FIRE is coming up with, and we might actually use pre-existing ones, but basically, you know, contractual promises that some of these companies can do to not engage in viewpoint discrimination, for example, uh -huh. to allow, you know, if you're going to kick people off for specified things that they should have some notice about that. So we're thinking through ways that you can do it because you have to try voluntary first. No, I like that. Yeah. For example, like Gavin Newsom, one of the things that he passed was a social media transparency law, which actually sounds like, a you know, to some degree, like a good first step. But he also says, and you have to report all of your hate speech policies and how you're policing hate speech and all this stuff. And I'm like, so they have to report something that isn't actually a legal exception, that nobody agrees on what the actual definition is and is often interpreted on campus to mean people I don't like. And it shows you how as soon as people in power are claim power over it, things can go really bad. And I definitely warn conservatives in particular here, because I thought it was amazing that there was, in some cases, people advocating for getting rid of Section 230 yes. like, outright. And I'm like, if you make these social media companies afraid that they're going to get defamation lawsuits, given they're already tend to be run by very left-leaning people, it's like, guess who's going to get kicked off super fast? That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I had the exact same thought when that stuff came up. I love your approach saying, look, let's create some voluntary options because every approach yeah. I hear, there's something that's nonsensical. The people who say, oh, okay, these are monopolies, we're just going to break them apart. Well, first of all, it's a bad analogy. These are not the same kind of monopolies as, you know, people had vertical monopolies in the oil or steel era. And if you lop off one of the heads of these hydras, something else will grow back in its place. That's how network effects work. So I like the voluntary answer. My follow-up question, though, would be how much of that voluntary answer is focused on moderation? So that's the human element. You have human moderators. And yeah. how 
much of it is focused on the design of these algorithms. And I ask this in part because one thing you begin to discover if you read the people who create these algorithms is they start these things. They don't always understand where they're going to go or what they become. Yeah. They can't tell you why. So how do you address the artificial intelligence angle of this entire equation? Because it matters tremendously. That AI is going to determine in large part what you and I see on the internet. I always practice the epistemic humility that I preach on stuff like this. And the answer is we're going to figure our way out through these things because the algorithmic approach is essential because literally the sheer volume of communication that happens on some of these big social media platforms, even the small ones, is mind-bendingly large. So you have to rely on algorithms to some degree. So once you actually understand it as a necessity, what can tip the algorithm in a way that can both allow them to you know, prevent true threats, for example, because I actually, I'm a First Amendment free speech guy, but I do want to be clear on this. I think the lack of enforcement of people getting actual threats to their life, the fact that more people didn't actually get in trouble for sending credible threats that I will come to your house and I know where you live and I'll kill you in social media over the last 20 years has undermined faith in First Amendment and free speech law because people think, oh, that's protected. Like, no, that's not protected. That isn't protected. It shouldn't be and it shouldn't be investigated. So I think there are ways to nudge them in the direction of making the algorithms better than they are. I was really skeptical of the Facebook oversight board. And I think it's actually... Among the, the different options they could have chosen, I think it's less dumb than I initially thought. <laughs> it's probably about as warm as I'm going to get it. But I, I was afraid that having an international group of people on the oversight board would lead to the convoy problem of just the whole thing would move just according to the least tolerant member of that group. But so far, the decisions they made have been fairly free speech friendly. That's fantastic. I could continue talking with you for another hour, but we both have other lives outside of this podcast. I just want to end here, Greg, tell people where they can find you and maybe share a bit about your next writing project. Oh, sure. Okay. I am the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. We are at thefire.org. We're doing a $75 million expansion, including suits on behalf of people whose First Amendment and free speech rights are threatened off campus. Um, to give you an idea of the kind of cases that we handle, we are involved in a case where it is a medical facility that is using electroshock therapy in order to treat autistic kids. And you can have whatever feelings you want about that, but certainly you have the right to be critical of that decision. Mm -hmm. And we're defending the people who decided to be critical of it and got a cease and desist letter that you can't criticize us for doing this. So the cases, a lot of times, if they don't fit like a partisan lens, they almost become invisible. And I want to be really clear to some of your listeners out there that those are the orphan cases. It's good to pay attention to them. We're doing a massive campaign about listening to each other and about defending the free speech rights of even people who disagree with. So the fire.org, we're doing this big expansion. We're doing some really cool stuff, including trying to educate people about free speech culture. My last book is Coddling the American Mind with Jonathan Haidt, which came out in 2018. And the next book I'm working on with Ricky Schlott, who I mentioned, is called Canceling of the American Mind and trying to really make people understand that cancel culture is especially dangerous when it's directed at people who we rely on for research, for expert opinion. Mm. Because as soon as you actually have people saying, oh my God, like you wouldn't tell me even if you found something else because you know you 
might be out of a job or at least hounded on social media. And even if the numbers of people who get canceled is not a huge percentage of the entire public, the ramifications of the hundreds and hundreds of professors who have lost their jobs in the past couple of years is profound. Well, I would encourage everybody to pick up Greg's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Go to Fire's website, check out some of the work they're doing. You can find some of his writing there. And I will be pre-ordering that book as soon as I can. Are pre-orders open yet? Not yet. <laughs> Apparently you have to hand in the book, but I, th- I think we're going to get it in on time, uh, which is unusual. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Great chatting with you. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. 